Welcome to Engineering Influence, a podcast from the American Council of Engineering Companies. And today we're going to be doing a deep dive into the EJCDC, the Engineers Joint Contracts Documents Committee, and a new series of documents that uh, they have released for 2023. And to do that, I'm very pleased to be joined by an expert in this area, Koi Veach. Koi is a, uh, a 40-year veteran with the firm Freeze and Nichols in Texas. He's also a past chair of the EJCDC committee, which means he's perfect for this. Uh, Koi, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. Um, a little background on the Engineers Joint Contract Documents Committee. It actually was uh, actually started back in 1963, but it's a uh, organization that writes industry standard contract documents for engineering, construction, construction management, um, design build, P3, a whole variety of documents. Uh, the, the sponsor organizations, which are the, the three engineering organizations that comprise the, the membership are the American Council of Engineering Companies, American Society of Civil Engineers, and the National Society of Professional Engineers. So uh, a lot of engineering influence in here, and actually that played a lot into the development of these documents. Yeah, you really have the main players in the field as part of EJCDC that are helping produce these model contracts and documents. In your experience, you've, you've, you've had decades of experience in this area. I mean, why are model contracts so important for engineering firms of, of various sizes and specializations to use in their business operations? I, I think I would say consistency of practice. Uh, the documents are also updated on a regular basis. And in EJCDC, the entities that are putting these documents together are engineers, construction managers, practitioners, people who, who actually work on projects. Uh, legal counsel, we have consultants that work from insurance, surety bond. So we brought, bring in a lot of expertise that you wouldn't have if you were developing these on your own. The, the other thing, and I work with a lot of owners that have their own documents that are sort of a patchwork of clauses that they throw in there to cure some problem they've had in the past. And these things evolve and they become very cluttered. And in some cases, just leave out key important language that you need to protect not only the owner, but also their engineer and others as well. Consistency, but also reliability, right? I mean, because these have been tested, these have been tested by courts, these have been litigated yes. and, and refined over time. So my understanding is that you could have a firm that is uh, that, that might be a smaller firm that uses these model contracts and has parity with the larger firms with larger legal compliance departments that are testing and, and reviewing these things. Um, is that, that also an aspect of uh, the model contracts? It is. In fact, that's one of the challenges that we, we face when we write the documents. We have a lot of very small clients uh, that, that rely on the documents, and then we have large firms that are using these for mega projects, and they have to be scalable. Uh, in fact, we, we have a um, one construction document that is specifically written for small projects because we recognize that if you give a small contractor a 70-page general condition, we're going to scare the pants off of them. Well, we're, you know, there, there are a whole series of EJCDC documents, and, and they can all be accessed on, um, on our website at acec.org. But, but for this conversation, we're kind of focusing on one family of documents newly released for 2023, and that's the CM 
CMAR, the CMAR, the Construction Manager at Risk uh, series of documents. Can you explain what the CMAR series is and, and why it's unique and how it differs from other project delivery methods? Right. Construction Manager Risk uh, is actually very similar to a traditional construction contract. And that has a lot of appeal to owners because the engineer still has is directly contracted with the owner. And then the contractor or construction manager risk is separate. The key differences go in that the construction manager risk is brought on early in the project, ideally, as you're doing the final draft of the preliminary engineering report, preliminary design report. So they work with the owner and the designer collaboratively to say, hey, we're the experts in costing and scheduling. Let's take the lead on that. Let's look at the documents from a constructability standpoint and improve the quality. And then nowadays, how do you, how do you purchase the materials? How do you buy this out in today's market? So I think when you look at construction manager risk, you have the advantage of having those traditional relationships, builder, uh, designer, and owner, but you also have the flexibility of, of being able to work collaboratively and then manage uh, a lot of the aspects that are really troubling for owners in terms of cost escalation risk and other things. And how, how, what's the timeline for, a, for a, a, you know, the CMAR project delivery compared to uh, competed, competing versions of, of, of other project delivery methods? Okay. Uh, the traditional project is very linear. Owner has a project. They hire an engineer to develop some sort of feasibility report, design the documents completely to 100% complete. Then it's put out on the street to purchase uh, to contractors to, to get a contractor on board who's going to build the project. So you have those three steps of design, procurement, and construction, very linear and takes more time. With construction manager risk, you bring the construct, typically the engineer comes on board first. And then one of the first things that either the engineer or the owner's advisor, and that, that's a new player in CMR that we've introduced, the owner's advisor will help get the, the CMR on board. In fact, we'll start the procurement process almost immediately so that by the time we go through the selection process, that CMAR is on board when the preliminary design report is near finished. One of their first tasks will be, revive, you know, look at my budget, look at my schedule, and tell me, can I build the project for that amount of money? It's very, very crucial. And from then on, there's a collaborative workshop. Um, unlike a, a linear project, though, the construction manager at risk can look here and say, look, I need to tie down the cost on this issue let me do a work package and, and buy some of the key components of, of material or equipment. Used to, we were only buying equipment. Now we're buying things as mundane as plastic pipe and duct iron pipe because of just the market conditions. So I think when you do that, you have the ability to fast track the work, begin early, and that whole flexibility that you get helps combat some of those construction industry issues that we're seeing now. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. It's almost uh, the CMR is working as a general contractor to an extent for both for everyone in the project and kind of looking at different potential pitfalls, whether it's supply chain issues, project uh, material costs, and the like. I mean, you know, what's a 
you kind of you touched on that a little bit. I mean, is there a specific example or like a like kind of like a case study of 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 a CMR kind of working and assisting with some of the supply chain issues in in modern uh, construction contracts? Now, one of the if you stop and look at the supply chain issues, I mean, they've just ballooned. We're seeing fluctuations and everything from diesel, copper, all these different materials that are basic to construction. And one of the biggest issues in pricing out a project is the longer you wait, the higher the prices are. And in some cases, if you're an owner who awards a contract or, or has a bid opening, but doesn't award a contract for six months, you've got six months worth of cost escalation built in. With CMAR, you get the CMAR on board. You typically have an authorization up to some amount that allows, instead of going through a board or council meeting, allows the CMAR to come back in and say, I need to go ahead and buy my steel today while prices are good. They're a lot quicker. They don't have the approval process, so they can get purchase orders in and get material bought out early. And, and that's the biggest issue of escalation. You know, we used to use uh, just-in-time construction. Don't buy it until it's time to deliver it and install it. It just doesn't work anymore because of the, the fluctuation in prices. Everybody's seen that. It used to be just-in-time everything until yeah. uh, the market went, you know, sideways and, and, and nobody knows exactly what's gonna, what things are going to cost from one, from one day to the next. Um, Let's let's take a look at risk mitigation because that's of course a big area of contracting and, and and you know how do you mitigate risk both on the construction side and of course on the design engineering side. Let's uh, take construction first. I mean, how does the CMR process help the construction side of the house mitigate risk and limit risk? Well, let me. One of the things that we're seeing in the trends and and, and my firm we do a lot. I'm a construction manager, so we see a lot of projects that are coming in. And, you know, used to we'd see, you know, one, you know, you put the project out there and you'd have a plethora of bidders. Now we're seeing projects, $50 million, $5 million, $50 million, where you have one bidder, one, one entity that's going to offer to build your project. Sometimes you're lucky you get two. So CMAR has a distinct advantage in that, not only in pricing, but especially in risk. Because now you can sit down while the project's still in its preliminary design phase and sit down with the contractor and say, look, what are the things that worry you? And we've done this before, even on traditional projects. And we make a list, we do a risk register, and then we get the contractor on board or the CMO on board, and he gives us this risk register. And we find out there's a little overlap, but there are huge differences as well. So the ability to come in and say, what are the things that you're going to put money in your, your bid for to cover those risks? And maybe we can take a different approach. The old school was you shoved all the risk off on the contractor and owners paid for that. And I think owners are, are a lot smarter now about that than they have been in the past. One of the other things we're seeing in the industry is the, the, CMARs, contractors in general, are looking and saying, hey, this is now my market. I'm in control. This isn't the day where I'm competing with 10 other guys. And when they're coming in to, to talk about the contract, they're wanting to negotiate for more favorable terms in terms of risk to lessen their risk, which, of course, means it's pushed back on the owner or the engineer. And we're seeing caps on damages uh, as part of that. So 
You can have liquidated damages, but they want to cap. You can have other damages for fines, and they want to cap. And if you don't give them a cap, they're not going to bid. So these things are actually, these questions are coming in before the bids are there. With CMAR, you have the ability to sit down and say, what are these items that are, that are bothering you? And let's figure out a mitigation strategy that works for us. Used to, general contractors didn't bond a lot of their subs because they could step in and act as their own bonding company. We're seeing more and more contractors that are bonding all of their subs simply as a way of managing their risk. And of course, the owner's paying for that. So I think with all of this, you can sit down and say, what are the issues? Let's identify the risk. Let's develop a strategy for how we're going to handle that. And it may be in terms of contract language, maybe extra work items to pay for risk elements. And it's a lot more robust than it is, than it used to be. And it should work to the owner's advantage because now they're only paying for what happens, not what might happen. I guess, you know, that was, you know, as, as he mentioned, you know, addressing the contra you know, the construction side. But I mean, that sitting down and having a conversation about, you know, a fairly frank conversation about, you know, contract terms and different specific areas of, of, of the project itself also, you know, goes to the engineering side of the house the same way of, of addressing those issues early. And it seems like the benefit is that you're able to establish this line of communication and this understanding early on in the project life cycle so that as it goes on, you already have these fairly uh, uh, clear established lanes that everybody fits into. So there's less of a chance uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the less chance of a conflict as you get closer to project delivery. Now, I've been asked, what do you think the two best parts of construction yeah. manager risk are? And my, my quick answer is, one, the ability to negotiate. Mm -hmm. It's just far better than having people bid a black box yeah. that they don't understand. The other is, and I know this sounds, uh, maybe sound a little tongue-in-cheek, but when contractors are, are picked on qualifications, just like engineers have been mm -hmm. all my career, we've always won work based on our qualifications. Now when contractors have to have a reputation in order to get selected for work, they're actually better players than they were when they just took a hard bid and you took them or left yeah. them. Especially when you had to take them when they were low bidders. So I think that's a, a real advantage with CMAR because it is a qualification yeah. there's a qualification component in that selection of the CMAR. yeah it's an important point I, it injects qbs into the project and as a whole so you're not just dealing with qbs maybe on the design services side but the construction side as well which means that of course you know that that generally tends to lift all boats right if you if you have, follow a qbs process you're 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 getting the best qualified contract uh, firm for for construction or design which produces the best result and that generally forces the market to respond so that everybody competes to be better, uh, which is a really important point that you raise. Uh, you know, we've talked so far about a lot of the great benefits uh, and, and, and advantages of, of having a CMAR in place in this process. What are some of the big challenges that occur when, uh, when, when project owners and, 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 and contractors are looking to enter into a CMAR relationship? Uh, I've, I've spent a fair amount of my time working on CMAR projects, not managing them, but cleaning up the messes. And, and when we go back and we look at, okay, what were the root cause issues in here? It's typically three things. One, it's just a bad contract. 
And in terms of a bad contract, well, what makes it a bad contract? It's, look, you didn't define how the CMARS contingency was going to be used. You basically got a pot of money, but you didn't lay down the rules for how that's going to be used. And when you start putting in cost-sharing provisions, which we actually don't recommend for CMAR contingency, then it makes it more and more difficult to manage that. And people get upset because it didn't meet their expectations. We see issues where owners don't do a good job of specifying or scoping out what the CMARS pre-construction services are. And when it comes to contractors, they're not all equal in providing pre-construction services. Some are very good at it. Others are just, they're out of their element. So if you don't have a good scope, then you sort of buying a pig in a poke and you're not really sure what you're going to get. Um, the other thing, and, and this is something that most people don't realize is most CMAR contracts are done on a cost of the work basis, which means I'm not just working to a lump sum and I really don't care what happens between the start and the finish because at the end of the day, you're only going to get paid that lump sum. CMAR work is typically done on a cost of the work basis, which means we have to be very clear about what's cost of the work, what's overhead, uh, what the markups apply to, and then we have to do some cost accounting to keep good records on an open book process in order to determine that you didn't pay for something more than what you got. And that level of effort in managing the financials was one of the things that we looked really hard at in developing the EJCDC documents because most engineers are cost accountants. And CMARs don't want to become cost accountants. So there's actually a tendency to get to a GMP and then convert it to a lump sum. And that's the way it was typically handled a lot until today's market where, you know, that lump sum has a lot of risk in there that, that you're not sharing again. Um, yeah, it seems as though I, those, are, those are really interesting, interesting aspects. I mean, scope creep is... <laughs> <laughs> something that that you know scares me the most. I mean, it's just with the work that I usually do here at ACEC, and a lot of it's just contract based with with vendors, and uh, you know, going out for a large scale project that that and it's so important to get scope right at the beginning at the outset because it generally tends to assist in the delivery of the final project of what you're working on. But that cost issue is something um, which also goes, I think, largely to that value proposition for EJCDC, it's that you have these documents and these families of documents that assist uh, engineering firms and aspects of operations, of, of contracting, the documents that support the contracting. And it does consider a lot of these aspects that engineering executives or, 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 or business leaders might not be focused on or experienced with especially the smaller firm that might not have an entire staff dedicated to business development and business generation. You could have someone who is, is working on projects and also trying to get that new business. I mean, broadly, breaking it out beyond just CMAR specifically, but you know, the, the value you have in the EJCDC family of documents to assist firms, not just in uh, signing up for pro, you know, specific project type deliveries and things of that nature, but you know, the other things that the documents help small firms with, I mean, what quickly in your mind, what are like the top maybe four or five things that you think small firms could benefit from with, with EJCDC? 
One of the things that, that we did with this set of documents is there's a, a position called an owner's advisor. Yes. And it really says you need someone who has the expertise to know about CMAR and about all these cost accounting issues and everything else. Now, one of the things we want to make really clear is the owner's advisor is a functional role. That could be fulfilled by a, an independent consultant. It could be your engineer, if they have the skills and qualifications they need. Nothing says they can't design it and then also serve as your owner's advisor. Or it could be an owner. I've got what I'd love to refer to as serial builders. You know, my clients who are always building something and they very well may have people on staff that are very experienced with construction manager risk. But I think this owner's advisor role allows us a small owner who doesn't have that expertise to say, I need help. Oh, there's an owner's advisor. I've got a scope of services in that contract. I can go out and hire that individual or firm and, and they can manage this process, process for me. I think that that's a role. Actually, when we developed the construction manager's advisor documents, uh, we went to, again, because our sponsoring organizations are all engineering firms, there was a lot of concern that, hey, wait, that you get this guy and he's doing what I normally do. So we said, okay, look, anybody can do this. It can be the owner, the, the engineer, or a third party. But let's define what those roles are in terms of what is engineering and what is construction management or advisory services. And then let's draw a bright line in there. And it took us several years to work through that exercise. But what it did was say, these are things that a construction manager can't do. Now, I've seen, I was doing a seminar and I asked, how many of you guys are doing this? This was all construction managers. And I said, now, how many of you guys are doing this? And hands went up and said, oh, you guys have just put your hands up for practicing engineering without a license. Stop it. That's, 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 that's a great anecdote. I, I think it's, it's a perfect example of the, uh, of the importance of taking these documents and using them and exploring them. And again, you know, as, as ACEC, as a member of the EJCDC, our, the contracts are available up on our website. You also go to EJCDC.org to learn more about the committee and the work that it does. And, uh, and Coy, I, I, you know, I really appreciate your expertise and the time that you've taken today to explain this, uh, this new document series uh, uh, to us, and, and really appreciate, uh, appreciate your insight. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, thank you again. And again, this has been Engineering Influence, a podcast from the American Council of Engineering Companies. We'll see you next time.